Second Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-three is where we're going to begin. We left off there. Um, this is the first chapter of Second Corinthians. Paul is having to defend himself. The charge. Paul is fickle. He's not a man of his word. That's what some of his detractors were saying in Corinth. Now, this all arose from, well, as silly as it sounds, a change in his itinerary. If you compare, don't do it now, but if you want to write down to compare 1 Corinthians chapter 16 with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, our uh, chapter here tonight, you'll see that Paul had made plans to come to Corinth, and for whatever reason, they didn't work out. Has anyone here made plans that didn't work out? Okay, so you can relate to Paul. But Paul's adversaries in Corinth seized upon this to discredit him. They were saying things probably something like this. Well, at best, he, he's not an apostle. I mean, he apparently didn't hear from God about his schedule. Or at worst, maybe he's a liar. Maybe he never intended to come. Those are some of the blows that perhaps Paul is trying to parry as we begin now in verse 23. Paul says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. So as the camera zooms in on Paul's defense, he says, Next I call to the witness stand, God. Now, you can't get a better witness than God. I mean, if you're telling the truth. God is the ultimate witness, right? He sees everything. He even sees the hidden things, even your thoughts and your motives. And that's what Paul is saying here. We saw it actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when we were talking about prophecy. God can reveal the deepest secrets of any man. And in Romans 2 verse 16, it speaks of the day when God will judge the secrets of man. There is nothing that you think you've hidden from God that is truly hidden. Paul uses this he says look you can't see my motives but god can and i am not afraid to call him to testify to you on my behalf he says moreover i call god as my witness against my soul that to spare you i came no more to corinth to spare you i came no more to corinth in other words he's saying trust me it was not a good thing it was it was a good thing that i did not come as expected. The word spare there means to forbear some punishment or some grief. See, if you haven't figured it out by now, there was some tension between Paul and this church. And Paul honestly came to the conclusion that a visit in person at this time would not have been beneficial. Basically, he's saying, if I had come at the expected time, I would have been the spark that dropped into the powder keg called Corinth. He says, because if I came, I would have had to address some things that no one else in your church is willing to address. He says, verse 24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. The word dominion there is kyrios. It's the same word for Lord. It means lordship, master, one who owns another. Paul says, look, if I came, it wouldn't be pretty but not because I'm the Lord over you. Paul says, it's not that we have lordship over over you. He says, that's Jesus' job. But now we begin to see Paul's heart here. He says, but we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. He says, look, 
Understand, please, it's not my job to be your boss. That's not my job. But my job is to work with you, a fellow worker, toward your joy. Paul says, basically, look, if no one else is willing to level with you guys, that your actions will make you miserable, that your actions will not result in joy, Paul says, I'm willing. Sometimes we forget, I think, that it's the loving thing to actually confront a brother. Not to lord it over them, but as a co-worker toward their joy. If you see a brother or a sister falling into sin that you know is going to ruin their life and the lives of others, sometimes the very most selfish thing you can do is nothing, is to just keep to yourself. Maybe some of you heard about this article. Um, this was from Wichita, uh, July 3rd, I think it came out. It's, it's terrible. As st- stabbing victim LaShonda Calloway lay dying on the floor of a Wichita convenience store, five shoppers, including one who stopped to take a picture of her with a cell phone, stepped over the woman, police said. The June 23rd incident, captured on a store surveillance video, had received scant news coverage until a columnist for the Wichita Eagle first disclosed today the existence of the video and its contents. Police have reputedly repeatedly refused to release the video, saying it is part of their investigation. It was tragic to watch, police spokesman Gordon Bassam said today. The fact that people were more interested in taking a picture with a cell phone and shopping for snacks rather than helping this innocent young woman is frankly revolting. Then it said Calloway, the the woman that was laying on the floor, she's 27 years old, later died at a hospital from her injuries. Now that's just, just insane. It's an extreme example of the philosophy of live and let die. Now, I'm fully confident that everyone in this room would have helped that lady. But to me, it does illustrate that sometimes the most selfish thing you can do is nothing. The most selfish thing you can do is to stay out of someone's life. Whether the wounds are self-inflicted or they're inflicted by our enemy who comes to steal and to kill and destroy, sometimes you need to get involved. Sometimes the most selfish thing you can do is nothing, and the most selfless thing you can do is to lovingly confront them. But notice, Paul says, not that we have lordship over you, but as fellow workers toward your joy. Sometimes what you need to do is confront someone, but not as their superior, not as the lord over them, but as a fellow worker for their joy. Now, we're going to move on to chapter 2. The uh, sometimes we think that the uh, well, we know that the uh, chapter breaks aren't necessarily inspired. Paul is definitely in mid thought here in verse one. He says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. The word determined there is crino. It means to decide. It actually means to contend together. It's used of warriors, of combatants. So Paul is saying, look, I wrestled with myself on this. I struggled back and forth. You got, you know, like the two little guys on your shoulders, right? One saying to Paul, look, you really should go to Corinth. I mean, you said that you would. I know these things aren't working out, but maybe you should go. And another one is saying, no, you will just make it worse. If you go to Corinth right now, the way they are, the way the things that you would have to say to them, you would make it worse. 
Paul finally decided after this wrestling, he said, I, I decided I would not come to you again in sorrow. The word sorrow there is lupe. It means pain, grief, affliction. Verse 2, he says, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad? But the one who is made sorrowful by me. Paul says, The reason I didn't come is I could not bear to lay any more burden on you. I could not bear to strain our relationship anymore with a personal visit. He says, you know why? Because I get my joy from you having joy. Basically, Paul says, I don't know if you know it, but I can't be happy unless you're happy. Paul says, I want you Corinthians to be happy. You can read in this. He's basically saying, do you think that I enjoyed this harsh letter that I needed to write to you? Do you think that I enjoy this confrontation? Verse 3, he says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Basically, this wraps, wraps up into Paul saying, Look, instead of a visit, I truly thought that a letter would be best. Now, Many scholars believe that Paul is referring to a letter that is lost, that between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians was a letter that they call the severe letter, um, basically where Paul lays it out even more than he did in 1 Corinthians. I don't know. To me, the 1 Corinthians could have been considered the severe letter because he, he lays it out. But whatever, whatever the... Uh, Meaning here is Paul's basically saying, look, I thought I'd send a letter so that you would have time to process my comments, that you'd have time to respond appropriately, that when I did finally come, we wouldn't spend all of our time arguing. That's what Paul's saying is, look, the reason when I came, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those whom I ought to have joy from. It's like when I come, I don't want to have it to be this really long teeth pulling session, hair pulling session. Now, if you've ever stuck your neck out to lovingly confront someone, you can relate to Paul here. The very people that bring you joy also can bring you the greatest sorrow. The very people that you most desire to fellowship, to, to work with them toward their joy, when they say, no, get out of my business, shut up, get away, they can bring you great sorrow. Paul said, I had confidence, the end of verse 3, I had confidence in you that you would understand that what makes me happy is to see you happy. Now, in these verses, I love it because it seems to me Paul is constantly having to clarify his previous statements. He's constantly having to say, okay, I said this, but you thought I said this, or I said this, and now I need to make sure that you understand I'm not saying this. This makes me feel really good. Every preacher goes through this. For instance, you try to communicate the love of God and the fear of a holy God in the same message. And it seems like the people who need to hear the love of God hear the fear of the holy God. And the people that need to hear you are standing before a holy God only hear the love of God. If it happened to Paul, I feel better. I mean, he lays it, out now, lays it all out now in verse 4. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, 
Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love with which I have so abundantly for you. The word affliction there, we've seen it in the last couple of weeks. It's thalipsis. It means to press together. It's talking about someone who is under pressure, under great distress. The word anguish there is a contracting, a narrowing. Both of these words are where it's pressing in on you. Paul says, out of much affliction and a constricting of heart. He says, I want you to understand, my heart ached. My chest tightened as I wrote that letter with many tears, he says. Sometimes we forget. We think, you know, Paul's just the superman, the guy who never had any uh, real emotions. It seems like he's just a machine. Not at all. He says, I wrote that with many tears. I wonder, it's speculation, but I wonder if as they read this second or third or fourth letter, if they looked back and said, let me see that letter again. And they looked, oh, that's what these smudges are all here for. In, in all the places where he was writing these really what seemed mean things to us, there's all these smudge marks. Maybe these were his tears. Paul says, please understand. My goal was not, middle of verse 4, not that you should be grieved but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. The word abundantly there means more, in greater degree, more earnestly, more exceedingly. It actually means especially above others. So Paul could be giving us a little clue that he had a special place in his heart for these rebellious Corinthians. Paul says, I had enough love to confront you with this terrible path that you were taking. Every parent can relate. How many of you, when you were kids, you heard the words, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? How many of you believed it at the time? None. But as a parent, you begin to understand the last thing, truly almost the last thing that I want to do is to inflict pain to discipline in any way my child that's about the last thing i want to do except the very last thing that i would want is for them to go into adulthood without me correcting their course whatsoever to let them just take whatever course they think is right and end up miserable in their life see it it takes love to write up a letter like paul wrote It takes supreme self-sacrifice. It takes the willingness to be misunderstood and maligned. That's exactly what happened with Paul. Now, as we come to verse 5, Paul shifts roles. He goes from the griever, if you will, to the grieve-e. He goes from the one that's inflicting the pain, though it was necessary, to the one who has been pained. But he wants to clarify something. Verse 5, he says, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Now, what in the world is Paul referring to? Whomever he's referring to, he says, Look, this person has not really so much wronged me, but wronged you guys, the whole church. He says, but I don't want to be too hard on the guy, not to be too severe. What, what in the world is he talking about? If you were with us in 1 Corinthians, you probably have figured it out. Turn with me to chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a man who was openly, blatantly living in sin 
in a way that shocked even the people that weren't in the church, even the, the Greeks, the Romans, um, the pagans, all of them looked at this Corinthian church and went, what? You really don't have a problem with that? Chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. In other words, a man was sleeping with his, either his stepmother or his uh, mother-in-law, whatever it is. It's basically something horrendous that even in America today, most people would, would recognize that. Verse 2, he says, And you are puffed up? And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you among you? He says, For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. Paul says, I can't believe it. Is this true what I'm hearing? He says, I'll tell you what, if you guys won't deal with this, he says, from I will deal with this from over in Ephesus. I've already cast my vote, if you will, as a as a in a congregational vote to Take this man out from among you. He says, um, verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What he's talking about here is, a well, excommunication is probably the quickest way to talk to describe it. Instead of mourning that there was sin in the camp, here in Corinth, the Corinthians were proud of their tolerance. So they confused a worldly sense of love with a lax view of sin. They had basically come to this conclusion, live and let live or die. They were failing to do precisely what Paul has been talking about up till now. They were failing to confront anyone on their sin. Nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody, even, even though the pagans and the Gentiles are looking on, nobody said, uh, is this messed up? This is messed up, isn't it? So Paul said, look, if you won't judge a man, I will from a distance. Just so you know, Paul isn't just making this up out of the blue. If you want to uh, study more, we don't have time tonight, but Matthew 18. Jesus gives a, a definite progression. He says, if, if a brother offends you, you go to that person, just you and him. He says, if he hears you, then you have gained your brother. It's an awesome thing. He says the whole goal of, of this, and we're going to see this as we go, is to restore the person who offended you, to bring, come back into fellowship. And Jesus says if that doesn't work, then take two or three witnesses that they might hear and they can judge between you two. And he says if that doesn't work, take it before the church. If that doesn't work, kick that brother out. He says let him... Jesus says, let him be like a, a heathen or tax collector to you. Now, that sounds really uh, pretty bold, perhaps um, brutal to some. But Paul says here, deliver him into the devil's hands. Here's what he's saying. Remove the privilege of coming to church. Now, some churches might not be that big a deal. Some churches might be like, okay, you know, like the kid who gets to stay home from school because he disobeyed, right? And he gets expelled. He's like, great. But I don't know about you, but I think when church is what it's supposed to be, when it's really what it's supposed to be, there's no place like it. Where else do you get to go to meet people who are sinners like you, who have been washed completely clean, 
and you get to meet with the, the God of the universe. You get to sing songs together to worship him. You get to learn from God himself. And you get to do all this because he's made you spotless. See, the purpose of excommunication, if you will, is to show an un- unrepentant believer. Now, again, this is someone who's basically like, yeah, I don't care what you say. This is what I'm going to do. It's basically to say to them, look, if you love this world so much, have at it. If you love this world so much, if this is really what you want, then we are going to politely request that you not come here until you've worked this out. Say, if if you love it so much, don't come back until you've had your fill of this world because what you want, our church can't offer. And when you come back, then we'll be waiting. When you're broken, we'll be waiting to receive you. So Paul says, back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, kick him out. Now, fast forward back to our text tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is great, you guys. You can see, we can see how beautifully this works if, we, if you actually do it in the spirit with which it's intended. They followed Paul's orders, and apparently it worked. Apparently he's come back, this man, and repented. He's moved his stuff out of his mother's house. He's done everything he needs to do to show that he's actually not just saying, oh, I'm sorry, but he's actually repented. And he's begged to be reinstated, and now we have a new problem. (laughs) Apparently, these Corinthians that were loath to discipline him are now loath to forgive him. That's so typical, isn't it? You swing from one extreme unbiblical practice to another. Maybe, because Paul had been so strong, maybe it went like this. The guy said, look, I've done this, I've done this, I, I am really repent i'm ready to come back will you have me maybe it went like this i don't know we're gonna have to check with paul i mean he was pretty hot you know i don't know we'll see i i can't speak for for him so i don't know maybe that's what they were thinking maybe they were waiting to get permission from paul well what's paul say look at verse six second corinthians chapter two verse six this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary You ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. That word urge there is beg. I'm begging you guys, reaffirm your love to him. Paul says enough is enough. He's like, guys, the, the, the guy repented. He was punished enough when most of you, the majority that he says, were in agreement with your judgment against him. He says, rather than continue to punish this guy, the thing to do now is to forgive and comfort. The word forgive there is karizomai. It's the same word we get charismatic. It's a gift. It it means to grant forgiveness, to graciously restore someone. The word comfort, we've seen that recently too. It's parakaleo. It means to come alongside. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter, the parakaleo, paraclete. To forgive and comfort, he says, rather than what you're doing now, the thing to do now is to forgive and comfort. This is really important, guys, and hopefully it will make you understand, especially if you're like, boy, that excommunication thing sounds brutal. You need to see that the excommunication was never the goal. 
The, the goal was never to get this guy booted out of the church for good. That was never the goal. No, it was a means to an end. The goal was his restoration. It's beautiful because back in Matthew 18, Jesus said, if, you, if a brother sins against you, go to him. And at the very first step, if it goes well, you have what? One, your brother. That goal never changes. We are not trying to get rid of people. No, we are trying to restore people. Now, just so you know, maybe some of you are wondering, we've never had to go through this process. We're a young church. wouldn't surprise me. Right? We've taken a, a couple little steps toward that, and, and people have always responded beautifully. And we've never had to go anywhere near this. I don't welcome that, but I also pray that I wouldn't shy away from what God would have us to do. Um, the goal from day one was not just to drive sin out of the camp but to drive the sinner to his knees before a holy God and then bring him back into the camp minus the cancer that was killing him and would have killed the body. You guys get it? It's loving confrontation. Paul says, now that you've done this and it worked and he's repented, forgive him, come alongside him, wrap your arms around him, restore him. Verse 7, lest perhaps... Such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. The Bible says there's such a thing as godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. But there's another kind of sorrow which leads to death. If, if you've ever really blown it, I can't imagine any of you have ever really blown it. If you've ever really blown it and you've truly repented, but the other party to whom you had offended, they refuse to forgive you. If you've ever experienced that, that can crush you. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. But when you repent and the other party will not forgive you, when that repentance, when that sorrow goes on unforgiven, it can like swallow you whole. It can eat you alive. You know why? Because man needs to be forgiven. It's our greatest need. I mean, that's the gospel, right? It's at the core of all of us. At the core of everything is my need to be forgiven. The gospel is this. You need to be forgiven. And God made a way. Verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Paul says, I beg you, reaffirm your love to him. And it's interesting because that word reaffirm means to publicly do such a thing, to ratify. It's great because Paul said, look, as publicly as you disciplined him, now that he's repented, you need to publicly reaffirm him. You need to publicly show him that you've completely put this behind you. Paul says, look, if it was a month ago that the majority of the church showed him the door, then now that he's repented, let those same people be the ones at the door with their arms open. And this is a beautiful thing. This is practical when you think about it. This isn't just for corporate uh, fellowship, for corporate discipline. But think about this. This applies wonderfully as individuals. I've shared this with you guys before, but I learned from my pastor something he taught his kids, and I'm going to teach my kids, and hopefully you guys are, I've already been taught, but when, when you say you're sorry, 
It's good to say it out loud. It's good to say what you're sorry for. It's good to be specific. It says because when, when you do, that's when the tears come. When you say, I am sorry that I broke your toy on purpose. <laughs> then the tears flow. And the, the little brother or sister says, it's okay, it's okay, you don't have to cry. Right? And there is, there's communion there. And I thought about this. It's interesting to me that he says, now you need to also forgive publicly. This one is new to me. I hadn't thought of this. You need to say you're sorry in a way that's very clear and understandable and specific. But so should we also say, I forgive you in a very specific, clear way. I don't know if you're like me, but if somebody says, I'm sorry, I really blew it. What I want to say, usually the first thing out of my mouth is like, oh, it's no problem. Or it's no piggy. Or, you know, forget about it. I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't do that. If you say it's no problem, well, maybe it was a problem. If you say it's no biggie, maybe it was a biggie. Maybe it was a pretty big thing. If you say forget about it, maybe that person shouldn't forget about it so soon. What you should say is, I forgive you. I was thinking too, you know why I think that's hard to say? Because when you say, I forgive you, you're saying, I'm making a conscious decision to put this behind me. You're saying, I will not bring this up again the next time we get into an argument. You're saying, I am releasing you from paying for this ever again. You're saying, this is going into the sea of forgetfulness with all my own sins. Verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Paul says basically, look, you, you passed the first test. Cast out the sinning brother. He says, now, don't fail this test. Forgive the repentant brother. Verse 10, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, we were there. You, know, you may have noticed Paul cast his vote in absentia to discipline this guy. He said, my vote is kick the guy out. Now, in this chapter, he casts his vote in absentia to reinstate him. He says, look, my vote is that you bring the guy back in. He's repented. Paul's basically saying, look, in, when, I, when I stood before the Lord in my quiet time, whenever it was, I have forgiven this man. Basically, he says, when, when he comes in through your doors and you hug him, give him one hug for me. Say, this is from Paul. Paul doesn't, won't bring this up ever again. Paul says, let, let this man, the one who did whatever sin that was, let him come back and let him know that I, I completely am in agreement with you guys in your forgiveness of him. Now, there is a phrase here that's a bit confusing, I think, at least for my maybe small brain. He says, for if indeed I have forgiven anything. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, it could mean, you know how you'll say, look, if I've ever forgiven anything in my whole life, I forgive this. Maybe that's what he's saying. But it almost sounds to me like Paul has maybe almost nearly forgotten this offense entirely. Now, this is a big offense. Nobody is just going to forget this. 
But it almost sounds like in his writing, he's saying, look, I forgive this guy for whatever it was that he did. I can't recall. Now, if that's the case, if that's what Paul's saying, I love that. Who's that sound like? He says, I will take your sins and I will cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. Paul says, whatever it was, I don't remember, but tell him I forgive him. Let me ask you guys. You who call yourselves Christians, I hope that's everybody in the room. Do you have a sea of forgetfulness? Like your king? Or is yours like a retention pond? Right? A little, a little place where you, you say, I'm going to cast it away, but I'm going to leave it there. It'll be in that little retention pond in case I need it. Right? The, the first time somebody ticks you off, it's like, okay, I'm going fishing. I'm bringing that, that thing back. If that's you, if you don't have a sea of forgetfulness, but you have a retention pond, pay attention to this next part. We're getting close to the end. He says, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, verse 10, for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Listen to this. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Wow. This is huge. I hate to say it, but without this verse, I would be pretty ignorant of one of Satan's big devices. One of his big strategies. The word advantage there in verse 11, it's pleonecto, nectio. It means to gain ground, to get the upper hand. The word devices there is speaking of the strategies of the devil. And um, it means, that the word is noema, and it literally means to think upon, to ponder for an evil purpose. I don't know about you, but whenever I, when I'm seeing these two words together, this gain the advantage and uh, the devices of the devil, I can't help but get a picture of a chess game with the devil. He analyzes our moves, and he's pondering. He's thinking, all right, what do I do next? He's always working to gain the upper hand. Some of you know what's Romans 8:28 say? Okay, none of you know. No, you do. Uh, it says that God is working all things together for our good. I would say we are fools if we don't realize that Satan is doing the exact opposite. He is working everything that he can, which thankfully isn't as powerful as God, but he's taken the bits and pieces that he has to work them together for our destruction. It's like a, a cosmic game of chess. It's like Satan looks at the things you do and he says, okay, now how can I make that move? Okay, that was a good move. That was a good move. But how can I use that to my advantage? How can I get the upper hand? Now, of course, we have the master looking over our shoulder, willing to give us advice. But he won't force our hand. He won't make us move, make a particular move. But he'll say, you know what? You should do this. On the chessboard that was Corinth, I think it went like this. God had the first move. White gets the first move. He came into Corinth. He saved myriads of people. He had told Paul. Paul even wanted to leave. He said, no, don't leave. I have many people in this city. He came into Corinth. He saved thousands, I'm sure, in Corinth. What was 
Black's first move. What was Satan's first move? Sin in the camp. The enemy found a pawn and moved him by way of seduction. It didn't force him, but moved him into immorality. And then what was the church's next move? Well, the church's next move was a bad one. Tolerance. Say, live and let die. They played into the enemy's strategy. Then Paul comes along, a, a bishop, if you will, under the hand of God. And he calls out to the church across the board. He says, look, that pawn is killing you. That pawn is giving the enemy an advantage. He's causing cancer. He's wreaking havoc. Paul says, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, hand that pawn over. Get it off the board. And they listened, and it worked. It's a good move. Good move, church. Yay, church. The man has repented, but now the Corinthian church is now withholding their forgiveness. And Paul, the bishop, calls across the board and says, Guys, don't fall for this. This is his next strategy. Paul says, if the enemy cannot get you to tolerate sin, he will try to get you through unforgiveness. And the enemy is probably going, Paul, shut up. Shut up. I don't want them to know this. I believe the enemy is saying that right now because I'm going to say it good and loud, slow so you can hear it. Unforgiveness is a strategy of the devil. Unforgiveness is one of his big devices. It's how he gains ground. It's how he gains advantage. It's how he gets into churches, into families. It's how he gets into marriages and rips them apart. Don't raise your hand, but are some of you right now a pawn in the enemy's hand? If you are withholding forgiveness, that's exactly what you are. You've given him a foothold. You've given him a piece of ground. You've given him a base of operation in your marriage or your church or your workplace. Paul says, I've already forgiven this guy, lest Satan have an advantage over us. He says, I'm not ignorant of his devices. I hope you're not. I hope I'm not. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, this is good advice for a marriage particularly. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And the very next verse, verse 27 says, don't give place to the devil. See, unforgiveness, that unresolved tension between you and another brother or between you and your husband or your wife, that unresolved tension is a strategy of the devil. Divide and conquer. Any time that you spend in unforgiveness, our enemy will use. He's using it right now, if you are walking in unforgiveness, to infiltrate the camp. I read an article this morning. Maybe, you, maybe some of you read it. Al-Qaeda is strengthening. They, they, it's coming through Pakistan into Europe. And because we have good relations with Europe, they're fearful that they'll get through because the... the uh, requirements to get from Europe to here aren't as stringent as they would be, for instance, to, uh, from Pakistan. And if you listen to talk radio at all, you hear over and over and over again, secure the borders. Secure the borders. Please secure the borders. You guys see where I'm going? Every rift 
between you and another brother or sister is a giant hole in our spiritual border. And the longer you let it go, the more the enemy will use it. What's the application? It's obvious. Forgive. Forgive one another. Don't give the enemy any kind of foothold. Don't give him an advantage. Don't be ignorant of his devices. I promise we're almost done. Verse 12. Furthermore, Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Real quick, this is Paul basically explaining to them once again his heart. He's like, look, I expected to get a report from Titus about you guys. I expected for him to meet me in Troas. And if you notice, the ministry is going great guns in Troas. Paul's like, wow, this is great. A lot of people come to the Lord. A lot of uh, good stuff happening here in Troas. But he says, basically, you know what? I couldn't really concentrate. I couldn't really rest. There was no real rest in my spirit because I had not heard from Titus about you. I didn't know how it went. When I sent that letter, I didn't know how you were going to respond. And he said, and it's, it was killing me. So... Paul says, I left a thriving revival to go look for Titus so that I could get word about you. Here's another real quick principle as we close. You ever heard people say, ministry would be so great if you didn't have to deal with people? Ministry is dealing with people. See, Paul could not rest, no matter how much great things were happening in Troas, he couldn't rest wondering if he and Corinth still had this tremendous rift. No matter what great things God was doing, it was hollow while there was this rift. I find that too, you guys. When there's a rift, I'm, I'm trying to study, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of the day, and there's just something that's not right. I feel like most of the time I'm like, well, I could try to work through this and just keep plodding away, or I could call that person and get it straight, and then my mind will be free will be clear so that I can actually do the work that God wants me to do. Deal with it. Get it taken care of so that you can enjoy the ministry again. That was Paul's heart for Corinth. Real quick to review. He was willing to be the unpopular one. He was willing to tell them the truth. But he was also the first to forgive, wasn't he? He was the, the first one to throw the thing into the sea of forgetfulness. And basically, here's our last principle that he, he shows. That all great ministry in the world... None of it mattered if he wasn't right with his fellow believers. Man, I hope the Lord will give us that kind of heart.